Yeah. Oh, man. How y'all doing tonight? All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started, shall we? Let's stand. We'll sing together the love of God. Dying on the cross when 
when sin first happened, right? Because there was a prophecy about he will bruise his head and he will bruise his heel. Right? That's in Genesis. Maybe that's what it's talking about. But God did commit to save us. He has redeemed us from our sin. And it took an immense amount of love for him to do that. And that's what that song's about. All right, let's go on to the next one. Jesus loves me.
Amen. Thank you, Brother Jason. Appreciate it. Good to have you all here tonight. Well, it's good to have the newest dad sitting here in the room with us. Did you all see? Uh, Sunday we'll have this on the screen, but uh, you guys get a sneak preview. Luna Jane was born yesterday. Was it yesterday morning? And mom and baby are already home. Everybody's doing well, and we're excited about that. Uh, seven pounds, three ounces, 21 inches long, and uh, everybody's healthy. So praise the Lord for that. Appreciate uh, you being here. So the in-laws are in town. He's like, I'm going to leave the in-laws over there and uh, come here. So we appreciate it. Anybody have a prayer request before we go to the Lord? Anybody say anything we need to just remember in prayer in particular? Grandma knows the Lord, but is actively dying in hospice, so uh, pray for the family there. Uh, if you remember Miss Pat, those of you, do you guys know who I'm talking about with Miss Pat? Uh, she's 91, just recently started coming to church, uh, and, and probably already knows your name, even though you may not know who she is. She probably already knows your name. She's just sharp as that. Anyway, she's in Florida uh, doing her, uh, her snowbird bit, and um, she got a call from her uh, medical company, whatever it is, that monitors her pacemaker, and they said, uh, your pacemaker is is not acting right. You need to go to the emergency room now. And she's like, I feel fine. They're like, just go to the emergency room. And so she called me and said, I'm waiting for the ambulance. And uh, she said, I'm feeling fine. Anyway, so they took her in yesterday, and they put a new pacemaker in. She should be home by now, but just pray for Pat Buchanan. I know that they would, she would appreciate that. Is that what you were going to say? Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. So keep praying for Robert. Anybody else? All right. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we just are so thankful for the opportunity we have to be here tonight to encourage one another and uplift one another to grow in your grace, to learn from your word. We pray that you would uh, be with Robert and just help this. Uh, radiation to get out of his system and help him to feel better. Uh, we thank you that uh, he's been diagnosed as in remission currently and just pray that you would uh, continue to touch his body. We're asking to heal him and just take this away from him. With Miss Pat, we thank you that uh, she got this, got in there and just pray that you would uh, uh, give the doctors wisdom as they continue to work with her, be it Adam's family as they're dealing with the, the uh, coming death of his grandmother, that you would just help them to find comfort and the knowledge that she's on her way to heaven. And thank you for little Luna Jane, who's uh, brought into this world safely and healthy, and pray that you just continue to uh, work in the Sharon's home. Uh, they raise her now in the nurture and admonition of you. Uh, be with our teenagers, our college students, and our young kids as they're uh, meeting in different parts of the building. Uh, bless all of those things that are happening, and we'll thank and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study of Between the uh, Testaments, if you've been following it along, those of you who have, good to have, did Austin leave us? 
Where'd he go? There he is. So Austin's here. Stand up, Austin. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing, what's happening. He's still traveling for the college, so when he travels through here. For those of you who don't know, Austin Fury was an intern of ours three summers ago. Three summers ago. Man, okay. back yet again and when you get a chance you can ask him some personal questions he has he might have some things to share with you this time I, we're on the air so i can't just talk freely you understand but anyway uh good to have austin back with us today so we're going through this uh study of cults i've just entitled it spanning the testament so it's people who show up in both the old and new testaments it's not intended to be exhaustive it's just intended to be interest driven quite honestly so uh, we've been kind of working through it. Today, we've been touching on Abraham, but today Abraham is our topic, as we know, of course, that he is a significant figure of the Old Testament and of the New, and so we'll kind of work through uh, Abraham here. In chapter 17, now we already looked, it was Genesis chapter 12 last week, that uh, God put his blessing upon Abraham, and that's the, that is the the part of the Abrahamic covenant that drives us. So this morning, I don't know where I fit it in. Things just trigger in my mind, and so this is what it is. But things kind of pop up. But since the founding of our nation, um, well, I know where it comes in, so let's just, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it in just a moment. Let's just read this, all right? So Abram becomes Abraham. Here it is in Genesis chapter 17 now. Chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant started uh, in verse 1. Abram was 90 years old and nine. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty. I highlighted and underlined, underlined the, uh, the phrase Almighty God because this is the first time that this title is given to God in the Scripture. Uh, it's the, the uh, Hebrew word, you'll recognize it right away probably, Shaddai. And so it's I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. In verse 2, 3, and 4, uh, God says this, And I will make my covenant with, between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be the father of many nations. And that kind of started a conversation a little bit this morning. It does say nations plural, right? The Bible says, God promising to make of Abram, Abraham, soon, uh, a, a father of many nations. So we know the primary. What's the primary nation for which Abraham is the father? Israel, all right? The Jewish people. We, we know that one's an easy one. Uh, and then, what would be other nations that would be associated with Abram or Abraham? Uh, Ishmael's the person, so what would be the nations? 
okay, all of the Arab nations for the most part, right? The, the Muslim nations, the Islam, Islamic nations, whatever you want to say. And that kind of triggered my thinking. So I do this because <clears throat> I've, I've taught it to you before, but what's the key to learning? Repetition. So this morning I said that, I thought, you know, I'm such a good teacher. And um, <clears throat> one person was able to give me the answer. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, so repetition is the key to learning. What? So we say this. And it is to the chagrin, and now we're going out over the airways, and I like this because I want somebody to hear it that needs to hear it. Uh, we say this, and uh, people don't like to hear it sometimes, but we are a Christian nation. What makes us a Christian nation? Okay. The laws of our nation have as their foundation the Bible and Judeo-Christian principles and ethics, right? That's what makes us a Christian nation. The same is true. It does not mean that we're a nation of Christians. It's about our laws. Do you understand? So if we have zero Christians in the United States, but we still have our Constitution and those laws in place, we would still be a Christian nation, just like... When you go to the Arab nations, somebody mentioned, or whatever, uh, Islamic nations, what makes them an Islamic nation is not that there's, there's only Muslims that live there. That's not true. Uh, we have ministries taking place in many of those countries to Christian people, right? Uh, what makes them an Islamic nation is that the foundation of their rule of law is the, the Quran and all the Islamic traditions. That, that's the foundation of their law. So, and when you think that through for a moment, this has nothing to do with this lesson, just me, you know, using repetition as a key to learning. Um, think, think of a law in the United States. I know we have some laws that are kind of goofy. Sometimes they're, you know, you know those goofy laws. Have you ever read a list of the goofy laws, you know? And you do know that those laws are like, they put them in place really for, like, there's a special day. And at a, in the in the town, so there's a town someplace out in Lincoln, Nebraska, I think it is, or someplace like that, where um, it's against the law to carry an ice cream cone in your pocket. Okay, well, I mean, the point is, they, you know, there was a there was some kind of festival, and it would be, you know, funny to produce present this law, you know. So sometimes these laws are that way. But think of a law for a moment here in the United States, and then think through how that it filters itself back to Christian principles. For instance, and um, the one that I don't like the most, but it's still true, uh, is our speed limit laws. Did you hear, by the way, that they're thinking about moving the Indiana speed limits up to 75 again? Anybody remember when it was 75 before? I mean, I can, I can remember when the speed limits for, for interstates were 75 before, and they're thinking about moving back up again. But the reason there are speed limit laws is because you being safe isn't the only important thing, right? Uh, you have a responsibility as a driver to other people. And so uh, there's a speed limit law, not so much to protect you. If you want to be an idiot and run 100 miles an hour and run into a tree and die, okay. You know, I mean, that's between you and the tree. But when your stupidity takes someone else's safety in, in, into peril, then, uh, you know, 
And the reason, think about that. That's a Christian concept. It is a Christian concept to say we think of other people before ourselves. That's a Christian concept. Things like zoning laws, which I despise too. (laughs) But, you know, for the most part, they're there because we we have as our foundation a Judeo-Christian ethic that says, if what I'm doing to my property is going to adversely impact my neighbor's property, I shouldn't do it. Right? There's this concept that says, I'm not the most important person in the room. That's a Judeo-Christian you know, ethic. I struggle. I'm just being honest. It's just me now. Okay, you can disagree with me and anybody else. But that's one of the reasons I struggle with, with seatbelt laws. All right? I, I struggle with them because that's just me. If I don't wear my seatbelt, it doesn't imperil you. Now, if I don't buckle my kids up, hear me out. I do believe that a parent that is not doing safety things with their kids and their kids, you know, get killed, they ought to go to jail just like, I mean, I think it ought to be a crime. And that's how you do it, right? That's how you deter this rather than making a law that says you have to wear a seatbelt like I need my mommy to come and take care of me, right? So years ago, I was in a car wreck. You know this. I broke my jaw in three places. I was was the only one in the car not wearing a seatbelt, and it messed me up. So I started wearing a seatbelt. I was 16. When I got to be about 19 or 20, the government made a law that said you have to wear your seatbelt. And for a while, I quit wearing my seatbelt just because I'm stubborn. And I thought, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm just telling you what I did. But you know, so the, the basis of our law is Judeo-Christian. And, but you go to a Muslim country, you go to an Islamic country, right, and where often women are considered property, and all of a sudden, that law is not the same. The, we have equal equality here in our nation because we have a Judeo-Christian foundation. So anyway, but they're going to make of Ab- God's going to make of Abraham uh, many nations, and it is funny how that those nations come out diametrically opposed to one another, and uh, how that gets there is a challenge, and uh, we'll look at that a little bit tonight. Let's take a look at verses five and six. Neither shall thy name be any more called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will... And by the way, it's interesting how God views things. Look how he says that. Past tense. It's already done. A father of many nations have I made thee. Abraham has one son who's 13 right now, and it's not the one that God puts the, uh, makes the covenant with. Uh, but he says, I've, you know, it's already a done deal. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Has that all happened? It's an interesting thing, too, that God says kings shall come out of thee, because in the beginning, when God establishes Israel, Israel is not a monarchy. Right? God's intent was not that they have kings. Read the scripture. You know, they were supposed to be a theocracy, and God was, you know, was going to deal with them directly. Uh, it is also interesting, though, before, uh, you know, as God is giving, giving um, the law to Moses, uh, he did say to Moses, when the time comes that the people ask for a king, read it. I mean, when the time comes, it's going to happen. When they, when the people, so when Samuel is, like, really disappointed because the people ask for a king, he really, honestly, should have already known, right? Because God had already said, you know, hundreds of years earlier, when the time comes, as people ask for a king, uh, this is going to happen. So anyway, uh, so kings will come out of him, and, 
Has God done this for Abraham already? Sure. Uh, has he been fruitful? Can we just focus on fruitful for just a moment? <laughs> Is it, we live in this really kind of weird upside down thinking right now that somehow being a people blessed by God is a curse. I mean, as Americans, we're supposed to feel guilty that we have, that we have, right? We're supposed to feel guilty that God has blessed our land and our, and our nation, and we're supposed, to, we're supposed to repent of that and give everything away. And, but it is an interesting thing that God's always blessed his people. Uh, and so, uh, but anyway, that's just another side note. Then we go to verses 7 and 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations. For in what kind of covenant is this? Everlasting covenant. To, which, again, we're that everlasting covenant. So last week we looked, and it was in Genesis chapter 12, where uh, what's the very first part of the covenant God makes with Abraham? I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. And from the founding of our nation as a Christian nation based on Judeo-Christian ethic and morality, from the beginning, before Israel ever became a nation in 1948, our nation has always been careful, careful in our relationship to God's to the Jewish people, because that covenant is everlasting, right? When God says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee, when later on, as you will, as you're going to see in just a second, when God gives them the land, it's an everlasting. And so, you know, it is right for the Jewish people to possess that land. It's an everlasting. Take a look at it. It says, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. That's what the Bible says. So you can fight against God if you want to. You know, I don't know how you feel about all that's going on. Am I, am I pretending that the Jewish people are always doing right? No. Am I pretending the Jewish people have a right relationship with God? No. But that's not what the covenant's all about. You understand? That's not what the covenant's all about. And so I'm aware that there's a rejection of, the, you know, the Messiah, and, I, and I'm aware that that puts them in a precarious spot, you know, with their father, their heavenly father. Uh, I'm aware of their God, but, um, you know, the reality is this is the covenant that God's made. And then he goes on to say, and I will be their God, and that's the part that the Jewish people have to contend with, right? It doesn't say I might be their God. He's their God. They have to answer them no matter what. And uh, so, you know, this is where they are. So God comes into Abram's life, changes his life to Abraham, and makes yet an additional covenant with Abraham as he's working in and through Abraham. <clears throat> also, he works through his wife. Sarai becomes Sarah. And so this becomes uh, an interesting thing. So as it says in verse 15, And God said to Abraham... Now he's Abraham. As for Sarai, thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall, be, shall her name be. 
And look at verse 16. I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings, and of people shall be of her. Uh, kings of people shall be of her. And you know that God's already uh, fulfilled his promise there. But take a look at verse 17. Because Sarah, Sarai, gets a lot of grief. Do you remember when, when she's overhearing the conversation between Abram and the uh, three, the three that had come, and they're 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 going to go and and deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. But on their way, they stop by to uh, meet with Abraham and Sarah, and and they mention the same thing. They mention the same thing that Sarah is going to have a baby. And um, what does Sarah do? She laughs, and she's kind of uh, rebuked for it. Remember, they come up and they're like, uh, "Why did Sarah laugh?" She's like, "Sarah, why did you laugh?" She, I didn't laugh. Do you remember that? story? Take a look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell upon his face and what? Laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? How old is Abraham, by the way? Ninety-nine. Now, by the time a baby is going to be born, he's going to be a hundred, but, you know, the, you know, most of us, if you're going to get to ninety-nine, you kind of round it off. It's like, whatever, he's rounding it off. But there he is. Can a child be born to him that is a hundred? And shall Sarah, that is ninety years old, bear and Abram, Abraham actually laughs. I mean, he, he does the same thing that Sarah does. There seems to be a little rebuke here. And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. You know, he's like, God, I've got a son, Ishmael. Couldn't you just do this with Ishmael? It makes more sense to me that this would work, right? Uh, I'm 100, Sarah, I'm almost 100, Sarah's you know, almost 90, by the time the baby would be born, we would be those ages. This is crazy. And verse 19, and God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him, the covenant that God has made, the promise of the land, the covenant that God has made, the promise of blessing those who bless and cursing those who curse, is going from Abraham through Isaac. That's an important distinction here. Uh, and it, it becomes, quite honestly, the battle of the ages. I mean, we're looking at, you know, thousands of years ago. Here we have this conversation taking place, and two nations or two groups of people are born out of Abraham and, uh, and you know, it literally becomes the battle of the of Forever, right? I mean, think about it. when's the last time that that there hasn't been battle going on of, about this kind of concept. It's been true ever since. Uh, so, um, you know, I I just think it's interesting that Abraham can laugh. I don't know. Look at what it says. It says Abraham fell upon his face and laughed, and you wonder was he? I don't know that Abraham fell on his face to worship. It's almost like Abraham fell on his face to kind of hide his face. Like, didn't want God to see him laughing. You know, Abraham fell on his face and laughed, as the Bible says. Uh, but uh, God just says, nope, Abraham, don't you worry about it. I'm going to take care of this. But I want you to see this. God remembers Ishmael. Sometimes I think we think that Jewish people, blessed. Islamic people, cursed. But I want you to read what it says in verse 17. Or verse 20, I mean. 
And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have, what's the word? Blessed him. Wow. That's literally what God says. I want you to catch this. God, it wasn't like God mandated that Ishmael and his children were all going to be enemies of, of Isaac and his children. They have choices. God blesses them. Do you remember when Jacob and Esau are born? Right? Remember that? They're twins. And um, God says something about Jacob and something about Esau that's sometimes difficult to hear. Do you remember what God said? He loved Jacob, and the Bible uses the word, and he hated Esau. And that's like, whoa, wait a minute, God hating people. Uh, And I want to remind you of something. God blesses Esau. Read the scripture. And so much so that when the children of Israel enter into the promised land, there's a group of people that God literally says, leave them alone. They're Esau's descendants, and I've made a covenant with them. I've I've made a promise with them. Leave them alone. I mean, it's not when when God uses that word hated, it's simply saying when in regards to my covenant, this is the choice I'm making. I'm choosing Jacob and I'm rejecting Esau and for God's purposes, whatever, but it's not like God hates us, right? There's there's passages that say, you know, God hates um the wicked and the unrighteous and you know, when you read the Old Testament, and sometimes we read those things, and, wait a minute, you know what? It's the same God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And God has never hated in that, that he despises people, uh, but does he reject people for certain things? Absolutely. Does he say, uh, you know, does he reject and, and despise their sin? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But it's funny that the people that God loves, right, are the same people who uh, had to stay in the wilderness until they all died because they, they were acting out in sin, right? The people that God loves are the same people who, while, he, while they're men after God's own heart, are murderers and adulterers, and you know, they're the same people. I mean, it's, it's not... So when God, when God uses that phrase, hated and, and, uh, and loved... It's not like we think of it often, you know. It's not like, you know, God didn't want these people, and it's for His purposes that He's accomplishing here uh, His His promises. But here's what He says: I have heard thee, and I have blessed Ishmael, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he begat, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac. Okay. He's like, I, I, it, this has nothing to do with whether or not I'll, I'll, I'll do for Ishmael. And I'm of the opinion that Ishmael and his descendants, I'm not, I, I'm not just of the opinion, I can prove it to you. Can a descendant of Ishmael trust Christ? In the Old Testament times, could a descendant of Ishmael convert to Judaism? Sure. People did it all the time. Remember at the end of the book of Esther? Remember the book of Esther, which is not talking about Jewish people 
that are in the kingdom. The Jewish people are the ones that are prisoners there. Uh, and so, but at the end of Esther, it says, and many people became Jews in that day because of what God did through Esther. It's amazing. You know, you become a Jew by conversion, by just simply converting. And so uh, this is true with Ishmael. It's not like they're destined to become the enemies of, of Israel. They have choices, but they've, they're going to make a series of bad choices, and it's going to go this direction. That's the way it's going to go. But here's what God said. God said, I'm going to bless him. I'm going to make him a great nation. Now, I'm, I'm going to establish my covenant with Isaac, but I'm going to make great, a great nation out of Ishmael. Uh, but Isaac, which Sarah, God keeps kind of pounding it back into Abraham because he's still struggling, I think, at this point. To, can you imagine what it would be like? to be 99 years old and be told you're about to become a kid, a father. So there's about six or seven of you in here that are old enough or long, been here long enough to know this. Uh, but, uh, you know, Melody and I had trouble having kids, and so we got our kids, and we're happy, and we're hunky-dory, and J.D.'s probably about seven, and I'm about, or, uh, and Mia's about five. I don't know. I, I have no idea exactly how old they are, but I know this. Melody was 40. Do you guys remember this? And I stood up at the pulpit... And I said, I want to introduce you to Abraham and Sarah because Melody got pregnant. And I mean, our our lives were reeling. We're like, what are we going to do? We, that was not something we were trying to make happen. It wasn't an expectation. We had two kids. We're completely content. God's been so good. He's blessed us. And like the other pregnancies before, she was unable for whatever reason. and never could tell us why, unable to carry them. And she did miscarry, but... You know, our initial reaction was we need to tell the church and get them praying because whether or not she carries this baby full term, if she doesn't, we need to pray about that. But, you know, if she does, we need to pray about that as well. I mean, no matter how this comes out, we need some prayer at this point, right? Uh, and, I'm, and, I, and we were only 40, you know, so I cannot imagine being 99. And you know, I would be with God. I mean, I would be with Abraham laughing Right in the face of God, probably like, yeah, right. Uh, but God says, again, I just want to remind you, Abraham, which Sarah shall bear unto thee uh, at this set time in the next year. And then God leaves off talking to, uh, with him and uh, goes up from Abraham. So uh, we see now uh, God beginning to work. But we still have a New Testament appearance. Oh, let's go to this. this is, oh, this is interesting, by the way. This is kind of an interesting thing. And if this is awkward, you know, this is the scripture. We're going to talk about circumcision. I said this morning, and I'll say it again tonight, if you don't really know what circumcision is at this point in your life, you probably don't need to worry about it. So, uh, But anyway, uh, this is circumcision. So look what it says. And it says, And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were brought, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him. And I want you to see this. Abraham is obedient. But let's be honest. Abraham and every man that is being spoken of here is obedient. This is a difficult thing to force upon someone. Would you agree? We're not talking about little kids like we do nowadays when they're you know, they, they, don't, they don't know and they'll never remember, and praise the Lord for that. But, you know, in this circumstance, can you imagine having this conversation? I mean, guys, here's what God said. 
and and I I want us to be obedient to God. And I'm just telling you, there's a lot of decisions being made here. You know, to force this upon someone would be difficult. Now you might force them like with peer pressure concept, right? We need to, you need to do this, or or you can't stay here anymore. Okay, I, I understand there's that kind of pressure, but to just not tying somebody down and getting this job done, it doesn't work that way. And, and so there's an obedience here, and part of that obedience is Ishmael, right? We we tend to kind of view Ishmael through this tainted lens, but Ishmael is blessed by God and chooses. And you'll see in, in just a moment that he's 13. It says, And Abraham was 99, 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old. I mean, you know, I, I have a feeling he kind of knew what was going on. And he's choosing to submit. That's a big deal. There, there's, I, I personally believe there's the possibility that Ishmael and his descendants could have said, you know what, we're going to buy into God's plan and we're going to help rather than fight against. Now something does happen and we could argue whether or not this is the cause of it, but when finally Isaac is born, Sarah, Isaac's mother, you know, not Ishmael's mother, but Isaac's mother, says, I don't want him around my son. And that rejection might very well have led to the rest of the story. You know, I don't know. It's a good lesson for parenting. Would you agree? It's a good lesson for parenting. Uh, we see those kinds of rejections again and again in the Scripture and, and how they play out and how it, it makes life difficult for people. Uh, and so, but the Bible doesn't say it. That's just me talking. The Bible doesn't describe it. The Bible, but here the Bible says two things that we need to grab hold of. God blessed Ishmael, and Ishmael obeys God's command right along with Abraham. He's right there with him. And it's, I just think that's an amazing thing. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And the same day, self-same day, Abraham circumcised, and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of the house, were born in the house and bought with money, uh, all of those, all the men were circumcised, and, and Abraham becomes obedient. We've got to hurry or I'm going to run out of time. So now we go to Abraham in the New Testament. And there's two places, really, where Abraham shows up, or how he shows up in the New Testament. And one of those is in this place called paradise, right? So, I don't know, I, I think we all understand the concept of paradise, but I'm going to tell you, we know about this much about it. You know, it's just very, very little that we know about it. What we do know is that the Old Testament people were, were exercising faith you don't believe me, read Hebrews chapter 11. And we know that they were exercising faith even in Christ. Read Hebrews chapter 11, where the Bible literally says about Moses that he, you know, rejected Egypt and chose the sufferings of Christ instead. So we understand that, right? That They understood more than what we understand, what we think sometimes that they understood. They understood God was going to give them the Messiah. And that that Messiah was going to was going to provide them a way uh, to enter into heaven. So then, so so the idea is, what happens to them when they die? Because redemption hasn't been purchased yet. Right? Christ hasn't come. Christ hasn't died. 
They're trusting that God is going to fulfill his promise. We trust that God has fulfilled his promise. But what happens? So there's this place that's called paradise. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked at the thief and he said, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise, right? In paradise. Uh, And so uh, there's a unique place called paradise. And we see the picture of it most clearly in Luke chapter 16. In verse 20, starting in verse 23, the, the rich man and Lazarus, remember the rich man dies, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth who? Abraham, there he is, afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. So there's Abraham afar off, and, and they're, they're in this place where the Old Testament saints are. But it's in the same general locale as another place, he lived up in hell, he lived up his eyes, and they can literally see one. And in fact, in this story, communicate back and forth, right? They're actually talking to one another uh, as, as they're dealing with this. And Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus, uh, <clears throat> evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented, and beside all this, Uh, Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can you. We can't go back and forth, right? We can't go back and forth. There's a distinction. There's a verse, and I forgot to look it up this afternoon. I'm sorry, I was going to look that up, but I think it's in Isaiah. Uh, But it says, hell hath enlarged itself. Anybody know where that's at off the top of your head? Hell hath enlarged itself. Uh, And the thought... That people put to it again. We're, we're this is we're trying to put pieces, fragments together and get an understanding. There's really not a lot given to us about this place called paradise. Uh, but you know the idea is that once the Old Testament saints are vacated, because once Christ dies, then the Old Testament saints he sets the captive free, right? And uh, and so he is able then to take them out of that place called paradise to their eternal home, but uh, and then what happens to the other space and hell has enlarged itself. Uh, so some would use that as an as a explanation. I don't really know. We, we really know very little about it. We just know that there's this place called paradise that people would go. Uh, and so they would await for Christ to, to actually die and resurrect from the dead, right? Uh, and it's upon his resurrection, then, uh, you know, there's that freedom has been purchased. And so uh, here is Abraham. That's one of the mentions in the New Testament. He's there. In Luke chapter 13, Matthew chapter 8, there are parallel uh, passages. But again, this is in that paradise concept that we're dealing with Old Testament, uh, you know, Old Testament uh, time period still. Uh, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Or I say unto you uh, that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So there's this this place of paradise where the Old Testament saints are still gathering. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, all, all of this is taking place. Uh, remember when Christ died? Uh, before he was resurrected, when Christ died, there's an interesting thing happens. Do you remember what happens that uh, involves Old Testament saints? Yeah, some of the graves were opened up and, and they went walking around. You know, it's like, 
you know, it, and I, there's, again, we're just given snippets, right? We're given snippets of information. We, to, to try to put too much def definition on those things would be foolish because the Bible doesn't put the definition on there for us. So we're just told what happens, and here's what happens. Uh, but they're coming up out of this. And then Jesus, of course, when Jesus, this is an, an, an important thing. <clears throat> you know, when Jesus is in the grave for three days, he is not being tortured. Do you understand? On the cross, he uttered three words that we can't get away from. It is finished. The payment was done. You didn't go to hell to, to uh, suffer. You know. Now, I am aware that there's a passage in the Old Testament that is quoted again in the book of Acts, chapter 2, that talks about Jesus. And it says, Thou, the Father, would not leave his soul in hell. Right? I'm aware of that. But the definition of hell, you know, is, is broad in that sometimes it's used to represent the grave and sometimes it's used to represent the place of eternal punishment. But, uh, you know, the Bible says he wouldn't, did not leave his soul in hell but brought him up from the grave, right? So, um, but anyway, uh, here we see Abraham in paradise. But there's one other place really that we see Abraham in the New Testament that becomes really the most important part of what we know about Abraham. Uh, and in fact, there's a famous story about this passage of scripture, not a story, a famous uh, historical moment about this passage of scripture uh, as the Reformation comes from it. Uh, but anyway, in Genesis chapter 15, God says this, and he, talking about Abraham, believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And that concept is going to be repeated several times here. So we jump over to the New Testament in Romans chapter 4. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And that became the turning point, right, in history where, uh, you know, we, we remember that Luther came to this conclusion that the way we're doing this is by works, and that doesn't fit. Uh, it is a, it, this is a, a statement of, or a, uh, a movement of faith. And so uh, it became a turning point uh, in history. So it was, it's a great study. You can, that's not for today. In Galatians chapter 3, we see it this way. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for right. We keep seeing the same thing, right, given to us. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. But James goes a little different direction. Remember how James deals with this, right? Faith without works is dead. So James is going to challenge us in our thinking here. And you need to hear this. James is not proposing that works are what save us. But James is proposing that works are visible in a vibrant, living faith. And dead faith does nothing. Do you understand? That's James' that's James' proposal here. That you know, dead faith is dead faith. It doesn't do anything. And a living, vibrant faith is something that we act upon. So here we are in James chapter two. It says, "Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with works?" And by works, 
was faith made perfect. So faith becomes complete. Faith becomes this vibrant, living faith. When we, so here's the idea. Believing. Hear this? I've got to say this carefully because I'm going to say this and somebody's going to misquote me. Believing isn't enough. Because the Bible says the devils believe. But the devils aren't saved, right? The devils believe. That's called knowledge. Having knowledge isn't enough. Have you ever noticed whenever I talk on Sundays about the gospel, I say, place your faith, your confidence, your trust in what Christ did on the cross as a payment for your sins. Because faith is it, its an action. It is, it is this... Well, Hebrews chapter 11 says it this way. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It, it, faith says, all right, God says, I'll do this, and I'm going to trust him to do it, right? I'm going to trust him to do it. And it involves that. So it's still faith, it's, but vibrant faith has action. It's living, it's vibrant. We can't just say we have knowledge. Knowledge doesn't save us. Knowledge puffeth up. It doesn't save us. Uh, it's faith that saves us. And so uh, he goes on to make that argument. Abraham believed God and it was counted imputed to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that, it, it, that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, again, we know that works have nothing to do with it, right? By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, God's very clear about that. But by faith, faith requires action. If we believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, right? So, you know, Abraham believed God. You know how we know? He did what God said. That's how we know. First John is written that way. That's, that's the whole premise of the book of First John. When you read the book of 1 John, sometimes you're like, wow, in order to be saved, I have to love my brother. In order to be saved, I have to you know, not love the world. In order to be saved, and, and it's all these works. But that's not the message of 1 John. The message of 1 John is, here's, it's assurance. These things have been written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal It's a book of assurance. It tells us, here's how I know my faith is real, because there's action to it. So it, it, that's, that's how I know my faith is real. So here's how we know Abraham believed God, because... He actually, okay, God said go, and Abraham said, okay, I'll go. And, and he, he trusted God. God said, Abraham, offer Isaac, and, and Abraham steps out to, to do just that. Uh, he's trusting God. So then we get over to Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to God to go out into a place which after he should, after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whether he went, by faith, so, by faith he obeyed, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. Now, he wasn't there with Isaac and Jacob, but remember, Isaac and Jacob were already in the loins of Abraham. Remember, we've had all this conversation before. The heirs with him of the same promise. And I love this last phrase, because this last phrase, I'm going to stop here, but it sums up the Christian life. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, don't you wish you could do that on a regular basis? 
just live with that in mind. We're weird people. Life's hard, beats us up. We're growing old, it's painful, it hurts. We're dying slowly. You know, it's like, it's like Chinese water torture. It, literally, that's what growing old is all about, right? You're just slowly dying. Uh, one day you can't move as well, one day you can't breathe as well. And, you know, if that happened one day and the next day you died, it wouldn't be so bad. But 20 years later, as your breath has slowly gotten worse and worse, you know, it's like, and yet we don't want to leave it. Strangely enough, we don't want to leave this place. I mean, we, here we, we, I, we watch these 90-year-old people, 95-year-old people gasping for their last breath because they don't want to leave it. And we have a greater place to look forward to. Oh, if we could just live like this, right? To live every day looking for a city which has no foundations, whose builder and maker is God, and let go of the things of this world. It is so great. It would be so great. Uh, but it takes faith, right? That's a step of faith to walk that way. So Abraham, there we are, Abraham, Old and New Testament. And I've only left you about three minutes to get together and pray with some people. Uh, you've had some prayer requests shared, so do so.